As we saw last week, the beginning of the book of Samuel marks the start of something new. And Israel most certainly needs renewal at this moment in her history. She needs reformation. She needs reconstruction. The whole nation needs to be torn down and rebuilt. Why? Well, the most obvious reason is because the leadership in the nation, the national elites, have become utterly corrupt. They are rotten to the core. There is liturgical breakdown in the church. False worship has replaced true worship. There is family breakdown in society. Families are falling apart. There is civil breakdown in the political sphere. So comprehensive reformation is needed at this point in Israel's History. Uh, as the story begins, it opens with a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, a man who lived in the mountains or the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah. Now we know from elsewhere he was a Levite. And so you might wonder, well, what's a Levite doing in the mountains of Ephraim? Well, remember, the Levites were not given any allotment in the land. The Levites were the priestly tribe, and they would minister at the central sanctuary. But they were scattered throughout the land, most especially to serve as local pastors. So you can think of Elkanah as a local pastor in the region Described, He's uh, one of those Levites who's been scattered throughout the land to uh, minister in the synagogue. And while he no doubt had his failings as a man, and some of them are evident in uh, this story here, he certainly seems to have been a good and godly man who took his responsibilities uh, as a priest and as a husband and father very seriously. You see here right off the bat how seriously he takes his obligation to Worship. He would take his family from their hometown up to Shiloh every year to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. They would sacrifice to the Lord of armies. That's really what the word hosts means there. They would go, they understood that worship is warfare. And so they would go offer sacrifice to the Lord of armies. Shiloh is where the tabernacle was set up at this time in Israel's history. And, of course, verse 3 tells us that the high priest Eli was there along with his sons, who were priests, Hophni and Phinehas. We'll see Eli and his sons are a big part of the problem that needs to be solved at this stage in Israel's history. We also learn very early on here in the book that Elkanah has two wives. There is Hannah. She's listed first, so she is uh, almost certainly his first wife. Her name, Hannah, means favor or Grace, And there's no question that Elkanah truly loves her. But perhaps because she was barren, he has taken a second wife, Penina, and with her he has children. Now, I talked about the problem of barrenness last week and how barrenness in Scripture is not just a family problem. It's not just a problem for the wife who uh, so wants to be a mother. We talked about that some. We'd also talked about how it's really in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, it's really a redemptive historical problem because Israel exists in order to bring the promised seed into the world. And so the seed line has to keep going. Barrenness is a problem. We talked about that some last week. Today, I want to talk about the problem of polygamy for just a few Minutes, Because our culture has made such a mess of marriage, we have made such a train wreck of marriage, there are some people out there, a growing chorus of voices, who believe we should bring back polygamy. Uh, perhaps you've, you've heard this. 
Marriage is a fundamental building block in any society. That is just a fact. The foundational relationship in any society is the husband-wife relationship. It's a special relationship. It's a, it's a unique relationship. And it is foundational in society. Not only does marriage bring a man and a woman together, but it connects people to the future through their children, their heirs, their Legacy, And so when marriage breaks down, when that husband-wife relationship breaks down, a society falls apart, a society crumbles. It jeopardizes the future of that society. Certainly, that's what's happening today. And this is why the breakdown of marriage in our day, the loss of a marriage culture, a culture that is supportive and encouraging to uh, what true marriage is, is so, it's such a dire emergency. We've got lower marriage rates than we've ever had. We've got very high divorce rates. We live in a culture that is so deeply cynical about marriage that many people reject it altogether. They say, I don't need a piece of paper to validate my relationship as if that's all marriage is about, is having a piece of paper. And so you've got lots of people who choose to cohabitate and have children out of wedlock. Uh, really, in our culture, obviously, there, there are always ways in which people sin against God's institution of marriage. They dishonor God's institution of marriage. But in our culture, it's not hard to, to, to trace this out. The breakdown really started with the rise of no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce laws first introduced in California. So many bad things start there, of course. Uh, first started in California in 1969, but then spread very quickly to other states. And as soon as no-fault divorce became an option, the divorce rate skyrocketed. People decided, oh, it's easier to divorce than to work our problems out. And the grass is always greener on the other side. And there was no longer a stigma attached to divorce. And so people began divorcing at much higher rates. It's important to understand divorce was very, very rare up until no-fault divorce laws. And then the divorce rate jumped from well under 5% all the way up to about 50%. It's down from a little bit from the highs uh, in the 80s now, but mostly that's just because fewer and fewer people are getting married anyway. So think of all the ways we have attacked and undermined and subverted God's institution of marriage. Scripture calls upon us to honor the institution of marriage. We have dishonored it. What are some ways we have done so? Well, no-fault divorce laws obviously damaged the institution of marriage. The sexual revolution as a whole, separating sex from marriage, damaged marriage as an institution. The rise of the welfare state damaged the institution of marriage because what does the welfare state do? It subsidizes illegitimacy. It has turned the government into a kind of surrogate husband and father. Uh, of course, the Supreme Court's Obergefell ruling a few years back, which declared that same-sex unions can be marriages. Okay, what a joke that is. But that did further damage to the institution of marriage. So what have we done? We have destroyed the permanence of marriage, the sexual exclusivity of marriage, the gender roles that make marriage work best. Even the male-female coupling that is the, at the heart of what marriage is has been undermined. Is it any wonder that some people don't think that marriage should be limited to just two people? Why limited to two? We've stripped away all these other objective features of the relationship. Why limit marriage to two people? But we need to understand polygamy is a sin. Polygamy is 
always a sin, always has been, always will be. It is contrary to God's design. It is contrary to God's word. It is true God did permit polygamy under the old covenant, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a sin. It just means it wasn't a crime. It was not criminalized. So in that sense, you can say it was allowed, but it was a sin. And as a sin, polygamy always has consequences. Some people wonder why it wasn't criminalized under the Old Covenant. So I'll just give you a little side note here. Uh, Perhaps God was more lenient about polygamy in the Old Covenant because marriage ultimately symbolizes the union that Christ has with his people. It symbolizes the Christ church relationship. And under the Old Covenant, God did not have a singular People. You had Israel, who was the priestly nation. Israel was God's priestly people. But you also had lots of Gentiles who, without becoming part of Israel, worshipped the God of Israel. And so in a sense, you could say God had multiple peoples in the Old Covenant. The church now is Catholic, meaning all those peoples are incorporated into one. But you could say, well, just as God had multiple peoples in the Old Covenant, so men took multiple wives in the Old Covenant. Perhaps that's what's going on, and that's why there's more leniency about it in the Old Covenant. But it's really clear in the New Covenant, polygamy is clearly excluded. You've got passages like Ephesians 5, which again describes the marriage relationship in terms of Christ and the church. The husband is to be an icon of Christ to his wife, and the wife is to be an icon of the church to her husband. And marriage, the whole point of marriage is to tell the truth about the gospel. Marriage is to be a symbolic representation of the gospel. But if that's the case, then polygamy tells a lie about the gospel. It preaches a false gospel. It tells a lie about Christ and the church. Further, we can say, we can look at a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul talks about officers in the church. And one of his qualifications for officers in the church, he says, he must be a one-woman man. He must be uh, a, a man who does not have multiple wives. It doesn't, I don't think it means a man has to be married, but it does mean that he cannot be a polygamist. He must be a husband of one wife, is how it is described in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So polygamy is excluded. Men who are polygamists are excluded from church leadership, and that normalizes monogamy. And one of the reasons why Western civilization, or what we could call Christendom, uh, a Christian civilization, one reason why the West, Western civilization, has been so successful is because of its embrace of biblical norms of marriage, including monogamy. See, what happens when people practice polygamy? Well, socially, polygamy is bad for men and women both. It's bad for women because they have to share a man and they have to compete as rivals for his affection, his Attention. It's bad for men because it creates a shortage of wives. Every time a man takes a second wife, that means there's some other man who won't be able to find a wife at all. It creates a shortage of women. So a polygamous society ends up with a surplus of single, unattached men who have no connection with the future through children. And that's never a good thing. That's always destructive. Further, polygamy also obviously causes problems in the family. There are many cases of polygamy in the Old Testament, so we could do case studies of this. You've got many families where polygamy was practiced. None of those families are happy. Let's just say that. None of those families are happy. There's almost always rivalry between the wives. 
Uh, you see it especially in the book of Genesis with Rachel and Leah. Their relationship with each other is terribly dysfunctional. It's full of rivalry and envy and manipulation. That spills over to the next generation, to their sons, and creates all kinds of rivalry and dissension and envy and manipulation there. It's, a, it's, it's incredibly destructive of the family. You see some of those same things hinted at here with Hannah and Penina. Penina is the one with children, but Hannah especially has her husband's affection. And so even though Penina has children, she's very jealous and resentful of Hannah and she actually mocks Hannah. Hannah, to her credit, uh, does not respond to the situation the way Rachel and Leah responded to each other. Hannah, to her credit, responds to the situation with prayer. She doesn't try to manipulate the situation. She doesn't get angry or try to take revenge. She uh, takes it to the Lord in prayer. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Let me focus a little bit more here on Elkanah because his name is important. When we are given names in the Bible, think of names in the Bible the way you would think of Indian names that are descriptive of the person or names in a Flannery O'Connor story that are descriptive of the person's role. They tell you something about the person, uh, the role they're going to play. So it is with Elkanah. The L part, the E-L part of his name is the name for God. So anytime in an Old Testament name you see E-L, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Samuel even, uh, that is the name of God built into the name of the person. Uh, the, so you got L, that's God. Then you've got the Cana part of his name. That sounds a lot like Cain, doesn't it? Cain, Cana. You've got Cain in the book of Genesis. The word Cain or Cana, it means gotten. So this man's name means God has gotten. Well, God has gotten what? Go back to Genesis chapter 4, right after the fall. Uh, God has promised to send the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, in Genesis 3.15. So Adam and Eve are expecting the birth of, of a son who will crush the serpent's head. In Genesis 4.1, Eve gives birth to Cain, and she says, I have gotten a man. I have caned a man with the help of, a Lord, of the Lord. Uh, I have caned a man. I've gotten a man. And there's a wordplay there on Cain's name. She canes Canaan. She's gotten Cain. Uh, perhaps Eve, this seems to be what's suggested, perhaps Eve thought that this son, her firstborn son, was the promised redeemer of Genesis 3.15. And that's why she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Or I've gotten a man, even the Lord. Perhaps she was expecting Cain to be the redeemer promised in Genesis 3.15. Of course, we know from the rest of the story, Cain turned out to be more of an antichrist than the Christ. He was a murderer who brought death rather than life. He proved to be the seed of the serpent rather than the seed of the woman. He destroys Abel instead of destroying Satan. He destroys his brother, crushes his brother's head rather than Satan's head. So Cain is obviously not the redeemer, but consider this. Eve said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, referring to Cain. Elkanah's name means God has gotten. I think we're told about Elkanah here, and his name is included. His name doesn't have to be included. Not everybody gets named in the Bible. I think the inclusion of his name is the author's way of telling us, telegraphing to us, right off the bat, that the story of this book will be the story of the promised seed. It's going to be the story of the gotten one. God, what is God going to get? God's going to get his seed. 
his promised seed. It's a story about the gotten one. Now, this story, Samuel, is going to record a lot of brother-brother conflict. There's going to be a lot of Cain and Abel-type warfare between brothers, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But this is ultimately the story of God's faithfulness. It's ultimately the story of how God keeps the seed line going and how God will get his man. God has gotten, what has God gotten? God has gotten a man, a man after his own heart. See, Elkanah's name echoes Eve's declaration. And in a way, you can say this is the theme of the book. God has gotten And what is God going to get? God is going to get a man. God has gotten a man for himself. This story will turn into the story of that man, the man God has gotten for himself. Again, a man after God's own heart. Samuel, the son to be born to Hannah, will pave the way for that man. But ultimately, we know it will be David. David is the man God has gotten. He's the man God has gotten a hold of. He's the man God is going to use. He's going to be the man God has gotten so that he can serve as a prototype of the ultimate seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David. See, everything in this book is pointing to that. Everything in this book is pointing to God's man, the one God has gotten, the coming king, the coming seed. We don't yet know his name at this point in the story, but we know he's coming We know he's coming. Hannah certainly knew he was coming. As we'll see, God has God. God will get his man. Now, when Elkanah would take his family to Shiloh uh, for a special time of worship, he would give portions of the sacrificial feast to Penina and her children, of course. But he would give an even better portion to Hannah because he loved her despite the fact that she was childless, despite the fact that the Lord had closed her womb. And it's interesting that the Lord opens and closes the womb. That's very clear here. Uh, He would give an even better portion to Hannah because he loved her, perhaps to compensate for the fact that she doesn't have children. Uh, Not surprisingly, this made Penina jealous. And so she provokes Hannah and Hannah weeps and fasts. In response, she's given this better portion, but she won't eat it because she's fasting before the Lord. She is suffering. In verse 8, Elkanah asks her, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Okay, Elkanah asked this question to his barren wife, why do you weep? And you might think, well, this is just a dumb husband. <laughs> Asking an insensitive question, like men are prone to do. Shouldn't he know why his wife is hurting and weeping? But actually, I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think that's, I'm not saying men don't do that. They do. Uh, but I don't think that's what Elkanah is doing here. That language when he says, am I not better to you than ten sons? That actually comes from the end of the book of Ruth, which of course is right before Samuel. And at the end of the book of Ruth, Ruth, the people of the town, the, the women of the town say uh, to, uh, to Naomi, isn't Ruth better to you than seven sons? Isn't Ruth, your daughter-in-law, better to you than seven sons? I think Elkanah is really doing the same kind of thing here. It's his way of expressing love for his wife. He's saying, I love you despite the fact that you are barren. And he's really calling on Hannah to count her trials joy, to remember what blessings she does have, to know that she is truly loved. 
Well, what does Hannah do? She does the only thing she can do. She goes to the Lord in prayer at the tabernacle. She wants to draw near to the Lord. And so when they're at the tabernacle where God's throne is, where the throne of grace is, she goes to pray before the Lord. This is the only thing she can do. And this is a beautiful picture of how God is with us, even in our deepest depths of suffering. So she goes to the tabernacle to pray. She draws near to the Lord in prayer. Verse 9 tells us that Eli was sitting on the seat. Eli is sitting on the seat. It must uh, be some kind of throne that they had set up uh, beside the tabernacle. Eli is sitting on the throne. There's some kind of special seat that must have been set up for the high priest outside of the doorpost of the tabernacle. Think of it this way. The tabernacle is like a new Eden. That's what the tabernacle is, a little miniature Eden. It's a, it's, a, it's a representation of God's sanctuary on earth, the way Eden was the sanctuary. And Eli is sitting next to the door pillar. It's like he's a new cherubim. Remember how cherubim were stationed to guard the way back into God's presence at Eden? Those cherubim were there to pass judgment on any who would draw near. Well, in the same kind of way, Eli is a judge sitting at the gate to the new Eden, and he is going to pass judgment. He's going to pass judgment on Hannah, as we'll see. Bad judgment, but that's what he's going to do is pass judgment. Hannah is distraught, of course, and in her anguish of soul, she weeps and she prays. Prayer is often emotional. I think even for us Presbyterians, we've got to understand prayer can be a very emotional thing because in prayer we take our deepest fears and anxieties and burdens, our deepest pains, we take them all to the Lord. That's something you see in the Psalms, not just here in Hannah's prayer. In Hannah's prayer, there are many places in the Psalms where you can see the anguish of soul as the psalmist pours out himself before the, the Lord's throne. And I think this is really important. Prayer, we must be careful. I don't mean you have to be super emotional every time you pray. But we need to make sure that when we pray, we're never just going through the motions. That we're praying from the heart. That we're praying with sincerity and earnestness and passion. That really does matter. So you can ask the question, does God care about the emotional intensity of our prayers? Will God hear us? Is God more likely to answer if we're more intense and passionate in our prayer? Listen to what John Frame says. Uh, Frame says, people sometimes ask, why do we need to be passionate in prayer? Does God need to be urged? Does God respond more to emotional appeals than non-emotional ones? Well, think what you will, but remember that our relationship to God is personal. He is our father, not a favor dispensing machine. Our emotions, our repetitions show our persistence. They show that our hope is only in God. And sometimes the nature of our requests is such that they are falsified by an unemotional approach to God. We're going to pray about something we should care about it. And that should be seen in the way that we pray. Again, I'm not saying you have to make some big demonstration of your emotions. Not everybody's like that anyway. But prayer needs to be passionate. There needs to be an intensity to it. Does God care about our emotional state as we pray? The answer is yes. If we don't really care what we're praying about, why should God care? If we do care, that will be manifest. It will be manifest in various ways. In the intensity, the fervency, the persistence, the earnestness, the sincerity, the passion with which we pray. And so here is Aunt Hannah praying intensely. She is praying 
passionately. And in her prayer, she makes a vow. Now, here she's not bargaining with God. There are places in Scripture where people do this. But she makes a promise to God. And this shows us at root, her greatest desire is not to just have a son for herself, but for the sake of God, for the sake of God's kingdom. At root, her greatest desire is not for her own comfort, but for God's kingdom. She wants a son, not for her own sake, but for God's sake. Her desires here are really kingdom-centered. Why does she want a child? Because she wants to build the kingdom of God. She's got a wonderful desire here. She wants to to become a mother, yes, but she is willing to, to give her child over to the Lord. And so she prays. She says, O Lord of armies, if you will look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and give me a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. You can't give what you don't have. And so if you want to give something to the Lord, you must ask for it first. She says no razor will touch his head. That means he will be a Nazarite. This is what it means for him to be devoted to the Lord all the days of his life. How will she give her son back to the Lord? In this case, it means he will be a Nazarite. Now you can go read about the Nazarite now in the book of Numbers. We'll talk about this a little bit later. There are three men in the Bible who are lifetime Nazarites. They're all born to women who are previously barren. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. They're all lifetime Nazarites. What does it mean to be a lifetime Nazarite? Well, remember here, she's praying to the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And she basically says, Lord, if I have a son, I will make him a full-time soldier in your army. He He will be a lifetime soldier in your army. That's really what Nazarites are. If you go back and look at the Nazarite now, what it's about, there were temporary Nazarites, yes, but a, but a lifetime Nazarite, okay, what does that mean? Think of the Nazarites as the special forces. They were kind of like the, the Navy SEALs of, of ancient Israel. And she's saying, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him back to you so he can be a great warrior in your kingdom because I want my son to serve your purposes and to serve your goals and to serve your kingdom not my own. And so she is willing to give up many of the pleasures of motherhood, of watching her son grow up. If the Lord will give her a son, she will give that son back to the Lord in this way. Uh, There's some things to note here in her language. The language that she uses of God remembering his people in affliction, that's actually language that comes straight out of the book of Exodus, where the people are in affliction because of their slavery, and God remembers them. God looks upon their affliction, and then he remembers. And it's not as if God actually forgets. What does it mean for God to remember? Well, it means God acts on a previously made covenant promise. That's what it means for God. When we call upon God to remember, when we do memorials like the Lord's Supper before the face of God, we're calling on God to remember the promise promises he's made to keep the promises he's made to us. That's what Hannah is doing here. She is in affliction and she wants the Lord to keep his covenant promises. She is suffering and she knows the nation of Israel is suffering and she wants the Lord to act. It is as if Hannah is in exile. Okay, affliction, that's the language of exile. And this affliction goes far beyond her personal barrenness. It extends to the nation as a whole. Hannah really is praying for a new exodus. That's what it would mean for the Lord to remember. She's praying for a new exodus for her nation. And we're going to see a few chapters later, especially when we get into chapters 4 through 7, that's exactly what Israel gets is a new 
Exodus. And her son, yet to be conceived, will play a big role in that new Exodus. Hannah is filled with the Spirit as she is praying. It doesn't say that, but we know that. Eli thinks she must be filled with wine. Uh, the same accusation. There's a contrast in Ephesians 5 between being filled with the Spirit and being filled with wine. He accuses her of being filled with wine. She's actually filled with the Spirit. And remember, the same accusation is made against the disciples in Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out, people accuse them of being drunk. They say, hey, it's early in the morning, and you guys are already drunk. And they say, no, we're not filled with wine. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. The fact that Hannah would accuse a praying woman of being drunk shows you that he is worthless. It shows you that he is spiritually blind. Hannah responds in humility to the false accusation. She says, don't consider me a worthless woman. Interesting, she uses that language. Uh, Later on, Eli's sons would be called worthless. And so that sets up some interesting comparisons between those who aren't worthless and those who are Eli wrongly corrects Hannah, showing he is a worthless judge. Eli fails to correct his sons, who need it, as we'll see, showing he is a worthless father. And his sons are worthless because they're in deep idolatry and fornication. Eli, he's the most elite figure there is in the nation of Israel at this point. Eli Fails. He fails as a judge, as a priest, as a father. Every role this man plays in, every role this man is supposed to fulfill is a disaster. Okay, It is a disaster. Uh, he's right at the heart of the problem uh, with Israel at this moment in her history. Nevertheless, he continues to have the office of the high priest. He still wears the uniform of the high priest. He has to be, you know, he can't salute the man, salute the uniform. That's really what Hannah is doing. And here in his office of high priest, he sends Hannah away with a benediction and an assurance. And so now Hannah has confidence God will answer her prayer. And so instead of fasting and weeping, now she is eating and rejoicing. Her fasting gives way to feasting. Her sorrow gives way to joy. Verse 19 tells us that Elkanah's family worshipped and then returned home. And guess what? Elkanah knew his wife and she conceived a child. Hannah conceives a son. The Lord remembers her in the midst of her affliction. The Lord answers her prayer. And so in verse 20, when her son is born, she names him Samuel. And then she explains the name. She says she has named him Samuel because I have asked for him from the Lord. That's the explanation she gives of Samuel's name. Now, this is very interesting. Uh, Hannah explains why she gives her son the name Samuel by saying, I have asked for him from the Lord. What's the connection between the name Samuel and asking? Well, the word for asked in Hebrew sounds somewhat similar to the name Samuel. And it's interesting, some form of the word asked occurs seven times in this chapter, including back in verse 17 when Eli says to her, your asking that you have asked will be granted. He doubles it up there and it's used later in verses 27 and 28. Hannah says, this is the child and uh, she says, this is the child that she has asked for. She says, the Lord has granted my asking that I asked of him. He is the Lord's for the asking. 
Now, English translations obscure this. So this is kind of the, you know, it's kind of the inside baseball. Okay, I'm kind of taking taking you inside the the preacher's laboratory here. This is the kind of thing, though, that even though it doesn't show up in English translation, it's important. It's very repetitive, this word asking. It shows up again and again. And it is somewhat similar to the name Samuel. Somewhat similar. Obviously, this is a really important word because it gets repeated so much, it's highlighted. But this is what's really fascinating. Samuel is close to the Hebrew word for ask. Later on, we're going to meet someone in this book whose name literally is asked. You know who that is? It's Saul. You can kind of see Samuel and Saul, they sound a little bit alike. They would sound a little bit more alike if we were speaking Hebrew. The name Saul literally means asked. So Hannah saw the Lord for a son. That's what she, she saw the Lord for a son. She asked the Lord for a son. Already in chapter 1, we are being prepared for the time when Israel will ask for a king. Israel will ask for a king in chapter 8 in the wrong way. And in response to Israel's asking, they will be given Saul. He is the one asked for. But here's the problem. They already have one who was asked for and given In Samuel, Israel should have been content with Samuel, the one asked for, instead of asking for another, namely Saul. They already have a Saul in Samuel. Samuel is the one who was Saul before the Lord, who was asked for before the Lord. Again, puns, word plays like this are hard to capture in translation. We're going to revisit this a bit more uh, later on in the story when we get to Saul's place uh, in the book. I might even just write this up for you so you can look at it and think about it and kind of see how it all lays out. But I just want you to know there is a link between Samuel now and Saul, who we will meet later. Their names are similar and they're both related to this word for asking. Samuel is the child Hannah asked for. Saul is the king the people asked for. Their names are related to each other. Their names are both related to the word for asked. And of course, they're going to be sharply contrasted. Saul will be shown to be a counterfeit. The true asked for one is Samuel. Hannah saws the Lord and receives Samuel. The people later will saw the Lord and receive Saul. And he is the counterfeit. Saul, Samuel is the one they should have looked to. Again, we'll see all that. That's, that's a, a preview of things to come. But I wanted to go ahead and point it out here. Well, Hannah's child is born. Samuel is born. Elkanah continues to make his annual family trip to Shiloh for a liturgical festival to worship the Lord at the tabernacle. But Hannah doesn't go for the first few years after uh, Samuel is born because she's nursing her baby. And she knows that when she finally does take him to the tabernacle is to drop him off. It's to fulfill her vow and she will leave him there at the Lord's house with the priests. And of course, that's what happens in verses 24 and 25. And when she brings Samuel to leave him at the house of the Lord, she makes the appropriate sacrifices, perhaps three bulls or a three-year-old bull, because Samuel at this point is three years, and this is to cover the three years of Samuel's life when he was not at the tabernacle. She basically hands Samuel over to Eli. Eli will be his guardian now. And of course, that sets up another contrast for us between Samuel as Eli's adopted son and Hophni and Phinehas who are Eli's 
natural sons. There's going to be a contrast there between these two sons, or these three sons, Samuel on the one hand, Hophni and Phinehas on the other, who represent two different seed lines, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Well, that brings us to chapter 2 and Hannah's song, which takes everything that happened in chapter 1 and ties it all together into a neat little package for us. It's called a prayer, but it's obviously a song, so you can think of this as a sung prayer It's really a war song. Like so many of the psalms, so many of the canticles in the Bible, it is a war song. Now, it's interesting that it's written by a woman. Because we think of women, especially mothers, as being soft and gentle. We think of them as nurturers. And, of course, they are. But precisely because they are nurturers, they are fierce when those they love are threatened. Mamas can turn into mama bears really quick when the cubs are threatened, when the ones they love are under attack. And that is Hannah here. It is really interesting how the Bible puts so much emphasis on women having a quiet, gentle spirit and and women being nurturers. And then you read the Bible and you find some of the fiercest and most vicious songs we have in Scripture are composed by women. They're composed by women. They're sung by women in times of crisis. Or warfare, and that's what we find here with Hannah. Uh, the Lord has been referred to as the Lord of Hosts or the Lord of Armies throughout this section, uh, throughout the, the the book so far. The son born to Hannah is a Nazarite, and Nazarites are holy warriors. So warfare as a theme is all over the book already. It's implied everywhere. Hannah's song fits with that. It is a war. Song. In fact, in Hannah's song, the warfare theme really becomes explicit. Through this song, Hannah is declaring war on the wicked, especially the wicked elites in Israel, those who have fattened themselves for slaughter, those who are blind to the light and the truth of God. Really, in this song, she is bringing a covenant lawsuit against the elites in Israel, the the leadership of Israel. She is claiming God's promises of victory to his people. She's not singing as a Marxist any more than St. Mary's Magnificat is, even though it talks about pulling down the rich from their high places and all that. The categories here are the righteous and the wicked. They're not socioeconomic categories. They may map onto that somewhat at this point in Israel's history. But we're talking here about the righteous and the wicked. And her prayer is a prayer on behalf of the righteous that God would overthrow the wicked. This is Hannah's battle hymn. And it shows us God's grace to her. Her name means grace. God, Hannah's Hannah, he shows favor to the one whose name means favor. And because God has favored her by granting her this son, she now has confidence and she has a song. Her confidence and her hope are expressed in the words that she sings and prays here. Hannah is playing her part in the battle by giving birth to a son. Having a covenant child is an act of war against the enemy. Because it means a new warrior, a new soldier in God's army has been born. And she continues her part in the battle by singing this song. This song is holy war. It is spiritual warfare against the enemies of God and his people. Hymns like this truly are a form of holy war. The church sings her way to victory. The church chants her way to victory. And Hannah knows that. 
Hannah is not seeking personal revenge. She's not seeking a personal victory over Penina. Might be easy to read it in that kind of way, but that's not what this is about. She is after something much, much bigger. The victory of the righteous in her nation. The victory of God over his enemies. The victory of God's coming king. God's coming Messiah. Hannah knows that the reformation and reconstruction of society begins with prayer and praise. She knows big problems call for big prayers. And that's what she offers here. Earlier she was overwhelmed with sorrow. Now she says, she opens the song by saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. She was overwhelmed with sorrow. Now she's overwhelmed with joy. She can smile or really laugh at her enemies. Why can she laugh at her enemies? Because she rejoices in God's salvation. That word salvation really means victory. She is rejoicing in God's victory before it's even happened. She sings God's praises. She talks about the the utter uniqueness of God. No one is holy like this God. There is none beside him. That's language you'll find later on in prophets like Isaiah. There is no rock like our God. He is our rock, meaning he is our source of safety and security and stability. You can build your life upon him. You can build your life upon this rock that is Yahweh. He's utterly unique and he's incomparable. She sings on, the Lord humbles the proud. He is the all-knowing God. He is the God who judges, the God who weighs our actions in his own balance. He is the God who will hold court and render verdicts. Forget the verdicts that come from the throne of that guy sitting next to the tabernacle. His judgments don't count for much if they don't align with God's judgment. God is the ultimate judge who will render the verdict, not Eli. But the real heart of her song is found in a series of reversals that really start in verse 4. God reverses the state of society. There's a series of reversals here. And what's interesting is that the same kind of reversals show up in Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. After Mary learns that she will give birth to a son, though she is a virgin... And then when she finds out that her older and barren cousin Elizabeth is actually now pregnant and is a few months ahead of her with the forerunner, the one who will pave the way for the son she will give birth to, the Messiah, Mary pins a war hymn of her own. We know it as the Magnificat. And what's really interesting is that Mary's war song is very much patterned after Hannah's. And Mary's war song also features several reversals. Her hymn echoes Hannah's hymn. Now, why these reversals? Why why must the mighty be made weak and the full go hungry and the barren be made fruitful and the dead be brought to life and the lowly lifted up? Why all of these reversals where the high and mighty are brought down and those who have humbled themselves are exalted? Why these reversals? Hannah's song actually has seven basic categories of reversal. What is the point of these reversals? Well, it really all hinges on what she says at the end of the song in verse 10. He, that is God, will give strength to the king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Okay, the word anointed, of course, is the word Messiah in Hebrew. It would be Christ in the Greek. That's who she's talking about, the Messiah, the Christ, the king. She speaks of the king, even though there's been no hint of a coming king yet in this book. The period of Judges, in fact, is known as that time period when there was no king in Israel. So everybody does what is right in his own eyes. 
Hannah's prayer is prophetic. It is a sign of things to come. It is a future-oriented prayer. She's looking ahead to God's king, to God's Messiah. Within the horizon of the book of Samuel, we know that king, that anointed one, that Messiah figure. We know the one she's singing about here is David. And the Lord will indeed exalt the horn of David. He will make David strong. But ultimately, her song points to the same one that Mary's song points to, the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord's Messiah. He is the Lord's King. He is the one whose horn will be exalted, who will have ultimate strength, who's given all authority in heaven and on earth. Hannah knows God's King is coming. God's going to get his man. God's gotten one will arrive. It is the Messiah. And when he comes, he will come to set the world to rights. See, again, her song is future-oriented. It is full of hope. Jesus will bring about the reversals that Mary and Hannah sang about. He will bring in salvation and victory to the humble who cry out to him. He will cast down the mighty and the arrogant adversaries of his rule. He will thunder against his enemies. He will judge the ends of the earth. He will bring about these reversals in Israel and ultimately in the world. Remember in Acts 17 when Paul is preaching in Thessalonica and opposition arises and there's this mob, there's this uproar and they start dragging people into prison who are allies with Paul. And the accusation is... Because of Paul's preaching, they say these Christians have turned the world upside down. That's how they looked at it. That's how they looked at it. The the people who were depraved and corrupt, they said the world is being turned upside down by the gospel. We've got a right side world, world right now, a right side up world. And then they start preaching Jesus and that turns the world upside down. Jesus is turning the world upside down. I would say those who accuse Paul... In Acts 17, they had the right idea in the wrong way. They had the the, the right idea, but the wrong claim. You know what the truth was and is? Jesus doesn't turn the world upside down. Jesus turns the world right side up. And he does so by bringing about these reversals. Jesus himself is the ultimate reversal, the embodiment of this reversal. His death is reversed in his resurrection. He brought life through his death. He is the humble one who has been exalted. He is the servant who is crowned king. See, our world today, there's no question, our world is upside down. Our world is topsy-turvy. Everything seems backwards and inside out and twisted. But Hannah's song shows us how to respond. Hannah's song communicates to us what we should do. Hannah's song tells us, fear not. Do not be overwhelmed with sorrow. Do not despair. Do not be anxious. Rejoice in the Lord. Because the Lord's got his king. The Lord's got his man on the throne. That man is Jesus. And Jesus came to turn the world right side up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.